Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. As always, feel free to reach out, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. And uh, if you go to beekeepingfornewbies.com, there is a link to the Discord server on there as well. We're pushing about 100 members right now. So it's a great place to you know, jump in and uh, share your thoughts and ask questions. And we've got a great little community being built up there. So uh, feel free to join and... Uh, Share your thoughts and ideas with everybody. So this is going to be the B-Buzz episode 12. Inside that Discord room, we have an area where we have uh, podcast ideas, uh, B-Buzz questions, a couple different spaces where you can ask questions that we can incorporate into an episode. So that's what we're going to be covering today. All of the questions and all the things I'm talking about are coming either from emails or directly out of the Discord server. With that, let's go ahead and jump right in. I've got a few things in here that are actually going to become full episodes, and I'll share those with you as I'm going down the list. So what does a normal beekeeping year look like for me? That's actually an upcoming episode. That's the next episode that I'm going to record. So I'm not going to address that here. But the first question we will talk about, is it okay to let your hives swarm and not catch or try to catch the swarm? The short answer to that is yes. If you just want to have a single colony. So I referenced this, I think, in a previous podcast, a really good friend of mine out in Nebraska. He started beekeeping years ago. He just wanted a single colony. He has flow hive on there. He cracks open the the uh, the spigot on that. He gets his honey out. He and his wife are perfectly content with that. They get swarms that happen once or twice every year, and they just keep on doing their thing, right? I think the real issues that you need to kind of be mindful of or I guess cognizant of when you're thinking about the idea of whether or not to manage swarming there's one side of it being kind of the productivity part of it and the other side being the overall kind of ecological health aspect of it if that's the right way to describe it on the production side of it it's like anything else If you have a factory with 500 workers, they're probably not as effective or productive as a factory with 2,000 workers. Same kind of thing in in a beehive. If you're trying to produce honey for yourself, for a small business, for friends and family, whatever it might be, if you have a colony that's massive and huge and has 40,000 bees in it, you're adding honey supers all the time and you are packing away a ton of honey especially if you're using nukes, like I talked about, you know, using nukes to boost your production colonies. You have these production colonies doing their thing, and they're, you're dropping a frame of brood or two frames of brood in there every couple of weeks and just boosting that population, and they, they just become these massive, massive, you know, hugely productive colonies. I mean, we're talking like, you know, 100, 150 pounds of honey that you can get on single colonies because they're, they're keeping you're you're keeping all of the bees there 
Now, the downside or the, or the, the piece of this that is kind of something to keep in mind from a general health standpoint you know, I'm hoping that you're taking an active role in pest management and treating for varroa and you're doing, you know, all the things that need to be done to keep your colony healthy. But when they swarm, that basically, again, you know, half your population is leaving. They're going to go out into the world and, and try and, you know, start their own life journey. If they go out into a tree and they establish a new home in the wild, they're not getting treatment. They're not being taken care of. Now, you know, again, some queens have that trait of being, you know, varroa resistant. Some of them can make it a really long time before varroa really, you know, takes over and is, is you know, um, life-threatening to the colony. But there's a, the health aspect to it is that that colony's kind of quality of life is going to be diminished. Those bees aren't going to be as healthy if they are exposed to varroa and varroa is infested in that, you know, that wild colony. Now, you may instinctively say, yeah, it kind of stinks for them, but not my problem. Not necessarily, right? Because it's not uncommon for bees to drift from one colony to another. This is how a lot of disease is spread within the, the bee community. If there are bees out there in the wild that you know, end up drifting over into your regular colonies that are being managed by you versus you know, the wild ones, now they're bringing, they basically become like varroa breeding grounds. And that can have an impact to bees everywhere. Now, if you're treating yours and you're taking care of them, at least when they do swarm, you know, they leave healthy. But what happens once they leave? You know, that's, uh, that's kind of up to nature. It's not necessarily detrimental for you if you don't want to manage them. Like I, I, you know, a few years back, I just, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on. And I had a couple of colonies that I wasn't even checking on. I just kind of let them go and did like a once a year inspection on them, treated for varroa and, and kind of left them alone. And they did pretty well. They swarmed, you know, they swarmed and, you know, whatever, you know, they still had a couple of deeps in the super and they were fine. Just something to keep in mind. Okay. The next thing is about breeds of bees and their traits. So we're going to do a whole episode on this, just talking about the different types that we, you know, we commonly see pros and cons to different, uh, the different ones. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about, uh, again, you, we talked about all the characteristics that we look for in a queen and in those genetics. This is something we'll talk about. You know, some of them have um, the temperament isn't great, but they're really good honey producers. Some of them have a you know great temperate, low production, but uh, they have a tendency to swarm. You know, there's all these different things that that we'll go into in a separate episode. When to feed and when to either not feed or to remove the feed. When we're feeding them sugar syrup. We have to be, you know, kind of just, just mindful of the fact that we're not giving them the most nutrient-rich and balanced diet, right? We're giving them something that's kind of like, you know, feeding your kid candy bars all the time. Can they live on the candy bars? Yeah, but is it the best thing for them? Probably not. There are a lot of essential amino acids and nutrients and things that they need to get from the environment. They need the pollen. Now, you could be incorporating a pollen substitute in there when you're supplemental feeding. You can actually take, you know, sugar syrup and mix in uh, some pollen sub with it. There's a lot of different things you can do. You can make custom po pollen patties yourself. You can buy pollen patties. There's different things you can do to get them some supplemental nutrients. You just don't want to be feeding them sugar syrup forever. They do need to have certain um, nutrients just to be healthy and to, to thrive, not just survive. But as far as feeding goes, 
In general, I don't feed established colonies. Kind of a little asterisk here, right? I don't feed them in the spring. So the spring kicks off. They make it through the winter. And right away, there's a flow on. They're getting nectar. They're getting pollen. You know, all things are, are going well in their world. If I do an inspection early and I see that there's a problem, right? They're completely out of food. I don't generally feed inside the hive anymore. What, you know, it's just the numbers thing. It's just opening up every single hive. But I know I saw you know Ian Stepler up at Stepler Farms. I know they've got a top feeder kind of solution where they can basically pull up with the truck that has a sugar syrup container on the back, and they've got a pump, almost like a gas you know gas nozzle, and they just you know fill the jars up, drop them on top, and I think that's a great way to bulk feed. I don't have that, and I don't have my hardware set up to accommodate that. So I'm either feeding inside the hive or I'm feeding open feeders. Open feeders are, are just generally easier. If I have to feed for some reason, I would probably just do it in an open feeder and and be done with it. But I'm not going to feed a regular production colony. You know, they they have typically have enough resources that they've used to get through the winter. They usually have you know some resources left. You know, typically, you know, two to six frames of honey, depending on how harsh the honey or the. <laughs> How harsh the how harsh the winter was. So I generally don't need to feed them. Now, package bees always, always, always. And I, I like I've mentioned before, I always do two to one sugar syrup. That's just again, I've mentioned from you know uh, Michael Palmer's recommendation. But the package bees, you know, you get them in, you install them, and they don't have any food. I said they're gonna have to start getting things in the environment immediately. So just assume that they get, you know, nine, 10 hours of light every day in, in the spring. So that's basically, you know, what, 16 hours a day, 15 hours a day, whatever it is, where they're in the colony and it's dark and they're still trying to do things. They're trying to draw up comb. They're trying to get things ready to uh, accommodate the queen laying eggs. And they have no resources, Right. So having that in the hive feeder, whether it's a top feeder, a jar feeder, a frame feeder, whatever it is, I give them sugar syrup typically for at least a month. I mean, I'll run it. I'll run it generally until they stop taking it. But after about six weeks or so, that you really shouldn't need to feed them anymore. But I always feed package bees. Nukes are usually okay. You just put a nuke in place, put them on a flow. You know, in fact. I don't even usually, unless I'm trying to force queen cells, I generally will bring a nuke in right away, put it into a deep with a medium, just right off the bat. Throw them in a deep, put a medium on top of that, and queen excluder. Or if you're going to do a double deep, honestly, if you're on a flow, you're going to have an explosion, right? Typically, those three three frames or so of brood are going to be born within the next week. And you'll get a massive explosion in, in the population, and just give them that space right from the beginning, and, and uh, that's kind of the way that I do that. But, yeah, uh, as far as removing the feed goes, it's typically, you know, once they stop taking it in, I remove it. Uh, nukes, I don't worry about it at all. Production hives, I don't do it. In the summertime, the only time I usually have to feed is, like, if I've done some splits, I, I will sometimes have to put, you know, open feeders out to supplemental feed. The production colonies have usually made enough to get through their dearth of the summer, and then they get a little bit extra with the fall flow. 
So they typically don't need to be fed, but if there's an open feeder, obviously they're going to take it most likely. And in the fall, I will typically feed colonies that are underweight for whatever reason. That's that's where you're going to get some supplemental feed in. The key there, though, is you don't want to be feeding them really late. You ideally want that to, like for me, it's like September, October time frame. You really want to get that knocked out as quickly as possible because you want that nectar to get the opportunity to kind of dry out and be, and be capped as capped honey. So you don't want to be trying to feed them at where I am in like November, December. That's probably not the best idea. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Okay, so the next question is, when putting frames in the middle, like we talked about before, where I'll, I'll sometimes uh, let, let's say, for example, I have five or six frames and they're just not drawing out on the edges and I want to add something to the middle to force them to draw up that foundation. I will push, you know, left and right. I'll pull usually one frame at a time. And this is the question. Do you do one at a time or do several? Once you kind of break up that brood chamber a little bit, you know, the resources are still readily accessible kind of to the left and the right. If you start doing a lot of them, they're they're just they're moving a little bit further if you look at the way they place resources, it's like you have a brood frame and then you'll have like some nectar and up in the corner and you have some bee bread and pollen. And then you may have another frame right next to it where it's just like all bee bread. And then right across from that is all brood, you know, and they just, they lay everything out in such a way that it makes it convenient and easy for them to have the resources they need immediately to take care of their brood. When you go and go in there and do what people call checkerboarding, where you do every other one. So you have like, a blank foundation, brood, blank foundation, bee bread, blank foundation, more brood. I, I know some people have had good results with that and it's effective for them. I just, in my mind, I feel like that's creating too much work for them. Like if I'm going to be in there doing an inspection every one to two weeks anyway, why not just kind of do it one at a time and, and without them? Because they're going to start relocating things and moving things around. And I feel like it's just going to create a lot of extra work for them. So I typically will do one at a time. That just seems to be what works for me. Now, if you if you really wanted to get, I guess, more aggressive with it, maybe you would bring like frames one and 10 and put them in like slots four and six, something like that. So you would have, you know, a bunch of frames, blank, brood frame, blank, and then a bunch of, you know, a bunch more frames to the other side of that. I mean, I guess that's completely fine. There's no, that's the thing with beekeeping, like, Every colony is different. Every population is different. Their behavior is different. The genetics are different. Some bees are just more tolerant of things than others. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like there's almost not really a really a wrong answer for anything. I shouldn't go that far. There's definitely wrong answers. But 
you know, you can get away with a lot and you can experiment. That's what's weird too. You'll experiment with one thing in a colony and you'll be like, oh, wow, that worked really well. And you go to another colony and do the exact same thing and it doesn't work. You know, they'll frustrate the hell out of you sometimes. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so let's see. Recent inspection. Someone did an inspection. There's plenty of space. And now there are queen cells. What do you do? It's the common thing, right? It happens all the time where they don't recognize either space to the left and right, space up above as expansion space. And it drives us all absolutely bonkers and and just it's just nutty because it's just so counterintuitive. But you have the queen cells, they're there, so you have, you have to make a decision. Now, first thing I would say is just you know, make sure that you're, you're looking at swarm cells. Right? Again, they're generally at the, that bottom third of the frame. Make sure they're definitely swarm cells. Look at them. You know, are they queen cups where it's just a little bit of a, the formation of a queen cell? And you can look inside and see an egg with some royal jelly. Or is it a fully developed queen cell that's not yet capped, fully developed queen cell that is capped? All of these things will help you get a time frame so you can kind of see how much time you have. But if they look like they're just swarm cells, and I mean, you're loaded down with tons of eggs, brood, cap brood, you know, various stages of development, the odds are pretty good you have a very healthy queen and everything is working fine like it should be in the colony. They just kind of have the perception that they're out of space. So as long as the conditions are good, you have a good population, you don't see any evidence of any um, disease or anything that looks out of place, then it's just genuinely they think they're out of space, they want to swarm, that's where you make the decision, okay, well, I see the queen. She's healthy. She's still actively laying. Everything looks okay. And I only want this one colony. So, you know, you go post in the Discord room, hey, I'm here in Georgia in this area. If anybody wants a queen cell, I've got one. Or if you have a friend in your area or someone at the bee club, and you're like, hey, I've got a couple swarm cells. If you want a queen, come and get it. And or if you're if you just say, hey, look, I want to check this out and try and see if I can make a new colony, right? Get a little mini mating nuke. You know, just put like a cup of bees and a swarm cell in there and see what happens, right? But you have to do something because if you only have a few frames, like we you know, we referenced in this example, right? There's only a few frames that are drawn up and you know, now you have swarm cells, you probably don't necessarily have a huge population now. You're probably about to have a big population once all of those uh, capped brood start hatching, but doing splits can kind of be disruptive. Right? When you have a really, really large colony and you just take like a quarter or a third of that colony and make another one, not super disruptive to that primary colony. But when you have a small colony, then you cut that in half. You know, a lot of people, myself included, I was so guilty of this. I just thought, well, cool. I got a queen cell. I'm doing a split. Oh, look, there's another queen cell. I'm doing a split. And you don't realize that by starting a new colony, you have to have a massive infusion of resources. You have to have a lot of nectar and pollen and bees, and there have to, all these things have to come together. When I first started, and I started getting into the splits and getting into you know swarm cells and being super excited about them and how I can now make all these new colonies for free, but yet I did nothing. Like I just took the swarm cell, did the split, and I'm like, yay, I'm done. And I didn't understand the dearth. I didn't understand that that I thought there was just nectar available all season long from, you know, from March, April through September, that there's just plenty of food for them. That's grass is growing. Everything's green. Why wouldn't there be? I didn't understand that at all. 
So that's a decision you're going to have to make with those queen cells. You're going to have to say, I'm giving them away. I'm destroying them. I'm selling them, whatever you want to do. But you, st- you have to intervene. Otherwise, you're going to have... You know, you're going to have some challenges there. That, again, your primary queen who is productive and doing. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Good things in the colony. She's going to leave, and now you're you're left with one of these one of these you know emerging queens getting rid of the others, getting mated, starting all over. Just a pain in the butt. So it's uh, it's an unfortunate thing. You know when you get a chance, you know start dropping those blank foundation frames in the middle and forcing them to draw things out. But yeah, you definitely got to intervene. So I covered some of this next question in the last topic here, but the next question is, you know, talk about making sure people understand how important it is to split with the flow and how much more challenging things become if we're not in a flow. And we did kind of just talk about that right now, but the biggest thing is, you know, like I talked about earlier on with all those essential amino acids and minerals and nutrients, you can supplemental feed and you can, you can keep them alive and keep them going, but they've got to have, you know, like a pollen sub. They've got to have something that supplements the, the all nutritional aspects of the bees, you know, required diet. If you are willing to, and able to do that, then you can keep splitting and you can keep feeding and you can just grow your apiary all summer long. Or if you're in an area that has a flow that goes all summer long, you can absolutely do that. As it gets colder, like if you're in a northern climate, you might not want to do a split after the first part of July. It might be starting to get it may be starting to get cold earlier. And, you know, you just can't sustain that. Whereas some parts of the south, you're probably still doing splits in August, right? But just just understand that if you're not on a flow, you have to be actively involved in supporting those splits. Okay, the next question. Should I start with empty frames? with no foundation or do I have to have foundation in there? So I have a couple of notes here talking about, you know, starter strips versus full wax foundation versus plastic. I like to do a full frame of wax foundation. I think that's just the best, a wooden frame with wax foundation. The reason I like this traditional wax foundation is that the bees typically respond to it very well. They will draw it up and, you know, they'll, they'll, use that very quickly to make it into a, you know, viable worker comb or well, whatever comb they need, but they, they respond to it really favorably. I haven't done it in a really long time because the plastic ones are just quicker and easier. And when you're dealing in bulk, it's just a lot simpler because, you know, sitting down and assembling all those frames and putting the foundation in and putting in the little clips that hold everything in place, it's kind of a pain in the butt. But if you're just doing it for two or three colonies or, you know, three or four new colonies a year, yeah, why not? I think that's the best way to go. Now, what you can also do, I don't do this a lot. I do it in my mini mating nukes, but not the production colonies. And it's not that there's anything wrong with it. I just haven't done it. But in a larger colony, like with a full deep frame, uh, some people will just put like a starter strip about an inch and a half or two across the whole top. So if you imagine like a piece of wax foundation, a full-size piece of deep wax foundation, 
and then cut that horizontally, say, five times, maybe six times, and then just use that little starter strip at the top to kind of get them going, show them where they should be drawing comb, and let them go from there. I know some people have a lot of uh, good results with that and have done that. I myself don't, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Give it a shot, try it out, and you know, see what works for you and see what they respond to. Uh, like I said, I just like to do the full sheet if I can. Uh, again, plastic is you know, plastic frames and plastic foundation. They they just have their challenges. They sometimes the the bees will tend to draw them out in weird ways. Like they'll draw comb off of them and then around, so you have like a big gap almost between the comb and the foundation, and they create these little tunnels through there and. Sometimes they just don't really manage it well. The ones I'm using now, like, again, it's like the, I, I can never remember these names. You guys are probably making fun of me because like every episode that I talk about frames, I always talk about how I can't remember the names of these frames. But it's like the wax right, something right, whatever it is. But it's the wooden foundation with the plastic. That's kind of what I'm using exclusively right now. I use, um, I do buy the darker ones to use it for brood chamber or for the brood chamber. And then the lighter ones, uh, Typically, I just push them to the outside, or if I'm doing a double deep, you know, I'll, I'll use those too. But I've pretty much standard on standardized on the darker comb or the darker plastic for that because it kind of makes it easier to see eggs. So you pull a frame out, and if you're looking with a black background, that black, you know, plastic foundation, it makes it really easy to see an egg in there versus, you know, brand new, like light colored comb on like a yellow background. It's a little bit harder to see. So that's just a quick little frame sidebar. But I don't recommend using nothing at all. Now, if you had, let's say, a frame of blank foundation and then maybe a blank frame with just the wooden frame with nothing else and then, you know, maybe another frame of foundation, if you tried that, you just, you have to have some structure. If you don't have structure, they're going to do whatever they want to do. And it's just, I think when I think about new beekeepers, one of the biggest things that's on their mind is like, I don't want to get stung. 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 And if you have to go in there and start ripping comb and moving things around and realigning things for them, there's a good tendency that they're not going to be super pleased with you. So maybe you can do something to try to reduce that possibility, probability or likelihood of you being stung. So I recommend going with something versus nothing. Okay, hive beetles. I've had a couple of questions about them. You know, the hive beetle, it's a pest. It's a little bug that runs around. They're kind of obnoxious. When you just see them running around, you're like, all right, whatever, little beetle, I don't care. But what they do is they go into the brood, like right before the brood's going to get capped. They go in there, they lay their eggs, and then their eggs feed off the brood, and then they can kind of reproduce pretty quickly. What I typically do is usually the first or second inspection I just buy those little generic hive beetle traps that's like a clear plastic. They're about eight inches long, and they sit flush on the frames. I usually put two per brood frame, and I fill them about halfway with the cheapest, you know, Walmart brand vegetable oil that I can find. And I usually replace them about twice a season, and that's about it. We have a big, with the dearth, we have a pretty good break and disruption in the brood cycle, so that certainly helps to reduce the population, same thing with Varroa, because Varroa reproduce within the brood as well. So that break in the brood cycle certainly helps, and it gives you a chance to treat and try to kill them. 
But yeah, they're obnoxious and they really can absolutely kind of take over a hive and they'll cause, they can cause, uh, if they get, um, and you know, enough of an infestation, they can cause a colony to abscond. So you, you definitely want to stay on top of that. The next question I have is if we store frames without freezing them, do we run the risk of existing, uh, wax moth or beetle eggs hatching and ruining the frames? I would say anytime you take a piece of drawn comb, whether it's got some, you know, honey or not, anytime you take it off the colony, I recommend dropping it into the freezer. Just give it three days in the freezer. I actually have a dedicated freezer that is for two things, and it's, you know, fishing bait and freezing honey frames or freezing um, foundation and frames with drawn comb. It's just a, it's a good thing to do. It kills whatever's on there. And then what I typically do is, you know, and just get creative on this one. But what I typically tend to do is try to get them into something that seals them and then something that kind of blocks them. So what I mean is like if you have an old cooler laying around that you're not using over the winter, throw a bunch of frames in the freezer, take them out of the freezer, you know, let them let them dry off. Because sometimes they'll be a little bit like ice or some whatever's on them. So you don't want there to be mold in there with it. So let them kind of thaw or whatever. Put them into a plastic bag. And seal the plastic bag, drop that into a box, and then just, you know, leave them on a box, a cooler, you know, something that's closed up. There is a powder that I have never used, but I know that, that people have mentioned it before. It's basically like a uh, wax moth powder that you can sprinkle inside on around the frames, and that helps to prevent them. Uh, I def- just you know, kind of hit the Google on that one and just, you know, wax moth preventative. But in general, you know, if I have something that's extra like that, a lot of times too, if I have you know, a, a colony that I'm decommissioning for whatever reason or I'm removing things from it, uh, if I don't have a place to store it and I'm concerned about wax moth, I'll just grab a hive tool and just pop all the wax off, you know, throw it into container to just be melted down later on. You can do other things with the wax, make candles or whatever else you want to do with them. Sometimes it's better to just make them start over in another year anyway than to try and salvage everything. Now, on the honey side of it, I don't store honey. I It, it either stays on a colony for the winter or I will use it to do a split. You know, so As I split, I move surplus honey to the split, maybe a single frame, sometimes two, depending on what I'm doing. But if I pull honey off the colony, it's because I'm harvesting it. So I pull it off. I harvest pretty much right away, and then I put the harvested frames back on to the hive, and I let them go through and clean up everything, give them a few days. They'll clean it all up and put it back wherever they want it, and that's it. So I don't store honey frames outside the hives, which goes to question the next question here, where to store honey when not in use? That one, you know, it's uh, it's that thing where you, you always have to be mindful of what's going to want to eat the honey. So I think in general, if it's stored in a cooler place and it's sealed up in some way, you won't have to worry about the things that don't like the cold, like ants and uh, moths and things like that. But there's critters like for my uh, my neighborhood here where I live, it's always these raccoons, which they're cool. They're fun. They're nice to look at. You know, they're whatever. They're raccoons. And they, in fact, they live on a tree in my yard. But, uh, they, man, they're always in the trash. They're always tearing stuff up. So if there's something that can get to them, they will get to them. So I recommend, you know, give them, give them the freeze. 
um, you know, wrap them up. Again, I don't store honey when it's not in use, so I may not be your, your best source of information on this one. But, oh, I know where I, yeah, extract it and put it in a jar. That's probably a great place to store it. Okay, when to super. Uh, I say I always say super early, super often, because in the spring, man, it is so easy to say, okay, I did my inspection. I'm going to come back again in a week. And then, like, that next weekend, you have Saturday. Saturday is your inspection day, and it's pouring down rain all day. And you're like, oh, crap, I can't do it on Sunday because I got some commitments. I'll just do it next weekend. And then you get back in the hive, and it's been two weeks, and there's swarm cells everywhere, and things are a disaster. Like, you're better off. Let's say, again, use that nuke example, right? You bring a nuke home. You throw it into a deep. You've got five-frame nuke, and you have five blank frames down there below it. If you're using a double deep configuration, throw that second deep on right away. If you're doing a single brood chamber, then go ahead and throw a queen excluder and drop a medium on there right away. Just give them that space. And I'll tell you, on a flow, when you see, if you look down in your colony and you see three, four, five frames of cat brood, right, you know things are about to get nuts. Drop two two supers at the same time on there, right? Because you'll be surprised at how quickly they will fill those things up. They will fill them up like you wouldn't believe. Having that extra space reduces that tendency to swarm. Has more keeps you know, like we talked about earlier, right? About whether or not you're going to let them swarm and reducing that population. The more of them you have in there, the more honey you're producing. So I I say super early and super often. The times you need to be really cognizant of the space is when you're getting into. Any areas where you have drawn comb that's not being used, you know, a good strong colony will keep the, keep the wax moth out. But sometimes the wax moth can get in there and get to these spaces that aren't really being used. Even though it's nice to have that extra air airflow and ventilation, they'll get in there to an unused space and they can wreak some havoc. So you do need to pay attention, typically as it's a little bit later in the season, like you get into where I am, probably like your late June, July time frame. That's when they start to be a little more prevalent. But that excess space is where they're going to hang out down the road and you definitely don't want excess space going into the winter but in the spring again you know you can get away with a whole lot when there's a flow so the next question i have here is how much spare stuff should i have i would recommend have as much spare stuff as you can afford to have and that you can store without having your husband or wife or somebody get mad at you for all the bee crap that you have laying around the house So I'll make a kind of some generic rules off the top of my head and just adjust them and tweak them for you and your situation. Let's say you want to have two colonies. At a minimum, what you should be thinking about going into next year is, okay, I have two colonies now. I hope they're going to overwinter. If they do, I know I'm going to have to split them. Now, you may not want to split them. Like we talked about earlier, you may decide, nope, I want all that honey. It's all mine. Okay, cool. But at some point in time, it doesn't matter how great of a beekeeper you are and how on top of things you are, you're going to have swarm cells. You're going to be in a situation where you got to make a decision. I'm a big fan of splitting and making new colonies, particularly on a flow. Why not go ahead and, you know, do a couple of splits? So if you have two, have enough hardware for four. So if you know, okay, going into the spring... I got my two that are hopefully going to overwinter and I'm going to split them and have two more. Well, I still need to have at least one extra for whatever comes up. And an example I had here is all of my bee stuff is not at my house because I don't have my bees here. 
but I still had a little bit of junk in the uh, shed. And when that swarm went to my neighbor's house and I saw it go in, you know, through the air and land in the tree in their front yard, I was able to grab this, you know, I grabbed what I think I used a screen to bottom board as my base. And then I had a, I can't even remember what kind of a bottom that I used for it. Oh, oh, I had, I did find one four frame nuke bottom board and a four frame nuke. And I had just enough frames available that weren't completely funky with a bunch of junk on them to establish. Oh, and I had a top. I had no inner covers. I do have a roll of canvas. I can cut an inner cover when I open them up today, but I just grabbed what I had, threw it together and I was able to put that nuke in place. But if you have those four, you know, hives worth of stuff, you probably want to have a fifth just in case you never know. It's always good to have a couple of nukes laying around, right? So in that in that kind of example we just gave, now you got your four colonies, you got one set of another fifth colony worth of gear just in case, a couple of nukes, maybe even you maybe you want to have four nuke boxes so that you can have two nukes and then if you don't have a place to put them, you can double stack them and put two on top of each other so that you would have maybe four over four or five over five. Right. So you can keep going on with this formula, right? You can keep going with, well, now that I have this, I probably want to go this high and I probably need three more for that. It becomes a bit of a rat hole, but at a minimum, I think that you need to have probably whatever you think for supers, probably add two more to that number for however many colonies you have today. And again, if you have the money, I would not be counting on our global supply chain to be in place for a long time. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that subject, but if you have the money now, buy it now because inflation is not going to be getting much better. Things aren't going to be getting cheaper. The availability of the things you need to keep bees is not going to increase, right? It's not like all of a sudden new suppliers are popping up all over the country in our thriving economy, right? So I recommend getting as much as you can possibly have available or there is a guy near me. He's like a half hour away. He's always got stuff. You know, I, I haven't talked to him in a while since I, you know, made some pretty significant investments myself. But when I only had two or three hives, I would drop him. His name is Andy. I would drop him an email. I'd be like, hey, Andy, I need, uh, you know, 20 pieces of medium foundation, a couple of deeps and this. Do you have it? He'd be like, yeah, I'm good all day Saturday. Just give me a call and drop by. I'd go over, drop by, write the guy a check, and I'm done. If you have a good local supplier, by all means, that's a great way to go if you know you can get it from somebody really quickly. But outside of that, you know, I, I recommend getting as much as you can put aside and uh, as much as you have space for. The next question I have is managing entrances, right? So you got that kind of entrance reducer with like the three-quarter inch to one-inch entrance. You got that three-inch, roughly that three-inch opening. You can take the entrance reducer out completely and go wide open. We've got upper entrances. We've got inner cover notches that have entrances. We've got mouse guards, all those things. That's a whole separate episode by itself. That is on my list. So we are definitely going to be covering that soon as well. So, folks, that is everything that is on this list. I do, Like I said, I mentioned a couple things in there. They're going to be separate episodes. So managing entrances and bees and their uh, traits and different breeds. And let me see real quick. I've got typical year for a beekeeper. That's another episode that's coming up. So we got a lot more on the way. But as far as this Bee Buzz episode goes, that is it. So again, feel free to reach out, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. 
and you can jump on the Discord server. The link to that is on the Beekeeping for Newbies homepage. Uh, feel free to check out some YouTube videos we got out there. It's just uh, at Beekeeping for Newbies on uh, on YouTube, and we also have Rumble. Rumble is set up, and it's getting synced up with YouTube right now. They said it could take several weeks for that to happen. So if you're a Rumbler, we're going to get some more action going on over there as well. That's all I got for you, folks. Feel free to reach out again, Jeff at BeekeepingForNewbies.com, and we will talk to you later. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.